When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, simply everything you can possibly think of, like tables, grey hair and spots. Ooh, spots. Have you ever seen The Pimple Doctor, Sam? No. Oh, well, as I, as I, as I muse and relax late at night, it, and, um, TV channel hopping, um, I sometimes uh, chance upon this, and it's the most extraordinary, extraordinarily gross show. Um, I, I don't think we should do the history of spots. I think it, I, I don't know how we do it. But my inspiration for those three was actually sitting in a meeting uh, and looking around the table and thinking, ah, uh, tables, uh, grey hair, uh, and spots came from somewhere else. Or we could do fleece, the police, grease, as in the country, uh, the history of the crease, which I, I quite like, um, release, the history of release, and the history of grease, as in the um, the sort of oily substance. <laughs> would you, any of those take your fancy? Probably uh, not. Well, well, I don't know. Spots, I think, would be absolutely brilliant because of all the, the um, smallpox, obviously. Mm. And we could think about uh, the medical history of spots, but there'd be all sorts of other other interesting things. And skin blemishes and skin in general is fascinating. So Ooh. maybe we should do the history of skin. Ooh. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think spots and skin. That sounds yeah, very well. good. Sounds very mm. good indeed. However, for the moment, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of keys, which was inspired by our book on the Vikings, is in fact all about Viking power, control access, the Viking housewife, treasure, weapons, symbolic female power... Exeter Cathedral and the Exeter Book, the keys of St. Peter, as well as latchkey children and World War Two. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of maggots is in fact <laughs> all about the American Civil War, ancient and modern medicine, dangerous Sardinian delicacies, the circle of life, forgetful mothers-in-law and Amazonian plane crashes. <laughs> Did you know uh, that? I did know that. Um, yes. I, 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 we, I always forget what, what we talk about. And then when you, when you come up and tell me again, um, I love it. All I, all, all I can remember <laughs> there about that is, a, is somebody telling me about a fizzing bag of maggots when a, a dead fox had been sort of put in a bag and a mother-in-law oh, had taken it away and just left it somewhere. And then they came back to find literally uh, this thing teeming with maggots. <laughs> Gross. Horrible, horrible. Sorry if you're, you're eating... 
Sorry if you're eating. You're all probably wondering who is this person who's making you feel sick. Let me just say that if history... You've got to pay attention for this one, guys. If history were the elderly son of today's mother's brother, this man would be nothing less than the sister of that brother's father's daughter's brother. He is the first cousin of history itself. And let me now say that if that was the case, such is his dedication to the past, he would have no problem marrying his cousin, just like Johann Sebastian Bach, Edgar Allan Poe or Charles Darwin, all of whom married their cousins. He is that cousin marrying man of research, professor extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And I have to point out, I I have not married a cousin, (laughs) just in case you were wondering. However, you may well be wondering something else. Who is that unattributed voice? So ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a cousin-related historian, he'd only be the Mary Queen of Scots to my Elizabeth I. Cousins ruling different historical nations. He'd be the erudite monarch of maritime and me, the erstwhile scholar of Tudor England. England, to To be honest, Sam, I love the idea behind this, but it didn't quite work. I think rather than being like cousins, we're much more like brothers, history buddies on a quest to change the way in which you think about the past today. Yes, you've guessed it in a rambling roundabout sort of way that it is, in fact, the historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis. <laughs> Hello, everyone. We are doing Cousins today. It's part of our, our family sub-series, James. I think we've done mothers, uh, uncles, sisters. Grandparents. Daughter. We've done everything, haven't we? We have. Possibly with the, with the exception of Cousins. So if you're interested in this and uh, and the way that we can think about uh, different familial familial relationships in the past do please check out all of our back catalogue ones um the mother's one i do remember being particularly interesting um so i mean cousins i immediately thought about a few things actually i thought about uh i was i was reading something on um on the history of Venice. I've just been doing a bit of stuff on Venice recently, but um, it was all to do with family connections, family business, nepotism to a certain extent, um, people getting jobs, making money, all through familial connections, which I thought was very interesting. So um, the, one, the first thing that struck me, James, was that there being a history of competence and capability, I suppose, in, in the workplace, which is what I was studying, um, uh, and and how that, that often has a long, fraught and quite bitter history um so you've got maybe a history of um preference over over people like your cousins giving them jobs and helping them make money so that was my my initial thought what about you oh that's very interesting because that means that's all about the importance of family and what you how you recognize them what you use them for and whether you actually prefer them for particular kinds of jobs yeah uh, you know or whether they whether whether actually putting somebody that you know in a particular post if they have no ability is in fact counterproductive and one of the things i'm really interested in about cousins is looking at it from the perspective of the history of the family and think about how we recognize cousins and their importance outside of the nuclear family so cousins who are cousins by by blood or by marriage the the way in which you actually recognize them as effective kin as it were who you had social contacts with or or intimate kin with whom you enjoy very close and sustained relationships and this is something that changes over time uh, according to region and place and and class but we can think about this in all sorts of ways it can have political implications in terms of self-defense and reliance it can also be that that kin step in in the absence of law so a lot of places you see that family groups based around strong cousin ties are how you get you know safety and security it can also you can also think about it in terms of patronage and service and intermediary contact so the usefulness that you make of your cousins one of the other things is about marriage uh, i think both of us will probably talk about marrying cousins and intermarriage but also the way in which cousins become a resource that you actually learn about favorable contacts for potential marriages at a time of arranged marriages Uh, could you also use cousins for 
for money or hospitality? Or are they simply people that you turn up and see at funerals and marriages, those rites of passage events that punctuate everyone's lives? Or can you can you rely on them for advice or for emotional support at times of, of great distress? I was musing the other day that actually when I was much younger, I saw my cousins on a more or less regular basis a couple of times a year. But since I have moved away from home and we haven't had many sort of family big events like weddings or funerals recently, I haven't actually seen my cousins. And I think I have one, two, three, four, five. I have five cousins, five first cousins and many others who are sort of dotted around. And I think that's probably unusual. I think other people are probably much more used to spending increasing amounts of time with their with their cousins, although not during lockdown. So that's sort of what I'm going to be getting at uh, with a little bit of a sort of foray into Samuel Pepys and his diary. Samuel Pepys is wonderful on cousins. Yeah. Um, we kind of both talk about kind of connections with cousins there. And one of the things that obviously struck me at the beginning, not obviously, you may not know this, but um, the First World War is an example of cousins falling out with each other. It's the best possible example. Um, you have Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, um, you've got King George V of England, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, and they're all cousins. They're all they're literally all cousins with each other. So Wilhelm and George are first cousins. Think how close you are to your first cousin, just to put this in the sense of actually what was going on in the First World War. Um Completely extraordinary. So the Kaiser Wilhelm is the first cousin of the of the English King George V. And George and Nicholas, Sir Nicholas II, they're also first cousins. And Wilhelm and Nicholas are third cousins. So all related. And there is no better example of familial relationships going wrong. People not being able to find some middle ground, unless it's... Um, between two trenches. Uh, so there you are. Um, an interesting interesting side to uh, family relationships falling apart. I was very interested in marrying cousins, as I mentioned at the beginning, just a few little list of people who, who married their own cousins. Uh, Bach did, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Darwin, and not James Daybell. Uh, but there's been some interesting uh, work on this, and it's possible people, anthropologists believe that up to 80% of what we would consider marriages have actually be, been between second cousins or closer in history. So that's anyone who shares a great-grandparent with you. It's really not that distant in terms of family relationship. And I thought that was um, really quite extraordinarily interesting. There are some examples of people doing it in, in European royalty, particularly to keep the bloodlines pure, but also in very wealthy families. Uh, the Rothschilds is a very famous example. Wealthy Jewish family uh, rose to prominence in the 1740s, still the major presence today in the banking world. But a lot of intermarrying there uh, to keep the wealth within the family. Um, so you've got those two examples, but actually it, an easy way of thinking about it, or probably a, a more common way in which it actually affected people's lives rather than being royalty or exceptionally wealthy was actually about travel. So if you can't get very far because there are no planes and there are no trains and there are no motor cars, it actually in some places made it incredibly difficult to find a suitor who wasn't actually related to you unless you were wealthy. So it's all to do with money as well. Um, it's actually a problem that they're facing in Iceland at the moment. The population is only 320,000 uh, and everyone is pretty closely related. So they've actually developed an app which um, gives you a beep if you, you were about to snog someone who is, um, who is too closely related to you, which I quite liked. They obviously didn't have that in the past, but at the same time, they weren't as necessarily afraid of interbreeding as we are today, simply because they didn't know so much about it. Uh, one of the most infamous examples, of course, being the Habsburgs. Habsburg monarchs and they were renowned for being so inbred they had the most extraordinary appearance um, the infamous Habsburg jaw uh, just jutting jaws bulbous lower lips long noses and they essentially ended up inbreeding themselves to death it all reached the end or well, its peak you might say with Charles II 1661 to 1700 um, born with terrible genetic deformities um, and he died with no immediate heir there was a description uh, well, not a bit of a tongue-in-cheek one here um, of, of him uh, his autopsy, autopsy 
Uh, the king's body did not contain a single drop of blood. His heart was the size of a peppercorn, his lungs corroded, his intestines rotten and gangrenous, and his head was full of water. <laughs> a really terrible, <laughs> terrible description. Um, there's been some really interesting modern work on this. I found a, a fascinating article in the Annals of Human Biology where it's a real mixture of art historians... You see, the advantage of the Habsburgs, there's an extraordinary series of almost photo-real portraits of them. And um, this article got modern uh, medics and scientists to look at it to try and identify genetic deformities uh, from the Habsburgs. And it worked uh, really very well. And they actually could, could put some sort of scientific numbers to the level of inbreeding, inbreeding coefficient that they'd managed to identify. Um, Charles II... Uh, particularly was identified as having an inbreeding coefficient of 0.25, which is about the same as two siblings, so a brother and sister, um, having children. But in fact, his parents were uh, niece and uncle, not brother and sister. Nonetheless, because they were substantially inbred themselves, it meant that he had this uh, this enormous coefficient of 0.25. Um, and just to finish this with Charles... Uh, Charles II, a description of him by the British envoy Alexander Stanhope. He has a ravenous stomach and swallows all he eats whole, for his nether jaw stands out so much that his two rows of teeth cannot meet. So very, very shocking indeed there, and um, all caused by cousins or closer marrying each other and having children. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, excellent, Sam. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about that and about the World War One cousins, you know, the Kaiser sort of falling out with, with cousins, is that actually this is quite commonplace, certainly in Western Europe, when you think that you have political systems that are based on inheritance. And so it's quite natural that rival, that cousins will become rivals against each other. If you think about Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I, which I wasn't going to talk about. It was just a sort of uh, charming way of introducing us as queens. Um, but the two of them become these rivals in the second half of the 16th century because they are both in line for the throne. And Elizabeth I is brought up Protestant and is therefore 
the seen as the is the legitimate queen of England, but because she displeases Catholics, Catholics look to Catholic Mary Queen of Scots as somebody that they can organise around and assassinate Elizabeth I and put Mary Queen of Scots on the English throne because she's been kicked out of Scotland and then she can renew Catholicism in the country so they can turn the clocks back. And so what this leads to is a fairly uh, bitter relationship between the these two rival queens. Uh, Mary comes to England, is under house arrest, and there are a series of paper plots to try and put her on the throne. And then eventually uh, she's found guilty and executed. But it's all because of this close cousin relationship that is entangled with power. But I want to go back to talk about something else and to pick up my earlier point, which was about the importance of cousins and how people, particularly in the 16th, 17th century, recognised cousins. And one of the way, best ways that we can look at this is not only through sources like letters, and letters will show cousins writing to each other, it'll show the frequency, it'll show the kinds of things that they asked each other about, the kind of language and hierarchy in the family that they use, or wills. Wills are very good because what it looks at is the transfer of property and money at the time of somebody's death. And if you look at how widely people recognise cousins in there, you can see the importance. I think if we were to generalise, I think you would just argue that there there is wide variation in terms of how people thought about their cousins. And one of the best examples is, in fact, in the diary of Samuel Pepys. And Pepys is one of those brilliant diaries, writing in the mid-17th century. He's somebody who kept his diaries very secret, uh, but he was really, really honest in them. So no, no holds barred account of precisely what he felt about his cousins. And I have some extracts to read you here from Pepys's diary from 1663 to 64. He writes on the 25th of May 1663, Up and my pill working a little, I stayed within most of the morning. And by and by the barber came and Sarah Kite, my cousin, poor woman, came to see me and to borrow forty shillings of me, telling me she will pay it at Michaelmas again to me. I was glad it was no more being indifferent whether she pays it me or no, but it will be a good excuse to lend her, nor give her any more. So I did freely at first word do it, and gave her a crown more freely to buy her child something, she being a good-natured and painful wretch, and one that I would do good for, as far as I can, that I might not be burdened. So we see here that Pepys, as the patriarch of the family, the senior male, who is obviously more affluent than others, is being turned to in order to provide a financial loan for a female cousin, uh, which he expects her to pay back, but actually doesn't really care whether she does or not, because if she doesn't, then she won't come to him for money any 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 more. But also you can see something in the uncle in him wanting to give a child some 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 money uh, for herself. Um, he, we then continue on the 27th of May. Here at Westminster Hall, I met with my cousin Roger Pepys and walked a good while with him and among other discourse as a secret he hath committed to nobody yet but myself. He tells me that his sixth sister, Claxton, now resolving to give over the keeping of his house at Impington, he thinks it fit to marry again, and would have me, by the help of my uncle White or others, to look him out a widow between thirty and forty year old, without children, and with a fortune which he will answer in any degree with a jointure fit for her fortune, a woman sober and no high flyer as he calls it. So what she what he's what he's talking about here is his cousin coming to him for advice about who to marry. So it shows the importance of close cousins knowing 
the range of suitable marital partners that an individual might be able to match themselves to. It also shows a degree of closeness because he obviously feels that he can go to Pepys in order to ask him for this kind of advice. Now, this is one of my favourite extracts here. Um, on the 9th of September, 1664, up and to put things in order against dinner. So he's preparing for dinner. I out and bought some things, amongst others a dozen of silver salts, home and to the office, where some of us met a little, and then home and at noon comes my company. In other words, Anthony and William Joyce and their wives, my Aunt James newly come out of Wales, and my cousin Sarah Giles. You'll remember her at the beginning. This is the woman that he gave the money to. He adds, her husband did not come. And by her, I did understand afterwards that it was because he was not able to pay me the 40 shillings she had borrowed a year ago of me. I was as merry as I could, giving them a good dinner. But William Joyce did talk so that he made everybody else dumb, but only laugh at him. I forgot there was Mr. Harmon and his wife, my aunt, a very good harmless woman, all their talk is of her and my two she-cousin Joyce's and Will's little boy Will, who was also here today, going down to Brampton to my father's next week, which will be trouble and charge to them. But however, my father and mother desire to see them, and so let them. They eyed mightily my great cupboard of plate, in other words, all his silverware. I this day putting my two flagons upon my table, and indeed it is a fine sight better than I ever did hope to see of my own. Mercer dined with us at table, this being her first dinner in my house. So there are several things going on here. Firstly, is he's having a whole range of people to dinner, including his cousins and family members, and he comments in great detail on whether he thinks they're boring or silly, so you get a sense of his attitude towards them. His cousin Sarah Giles, her husband doesn't come because he is embarrassed about not being able to pay back the money. But all that, that Pepys has lent them. But also I think what's really interesting is here is when is Pepys has really gone to town to show off his wealth. You know, and he writes the bit where he says they eyed mightily my great cupboard of plate. I mean, he's obviously showing off about this and the two flagons that he puts on the table. This is really about showing off and showing how wealthy and successful he is to his family, including his cousins. I actually think at the end of it, um, Pepys isn't, isn't a particularly nice man, Sam. No, <laughs> but he always does give that sense of, of being slightly on the edge, uh, but really very focused on family, always always is, isn't he? And on those family relationships, um, which is when you do something like the history of cousins, it's quite an obvious, obvious way to look at. But I wanted to take this principle, um, but use the description of a cousin rather than it being an actual relationship. I'm not sure what Samuel Pepys would have thought about this. But I wanted to talk about Cousin Jack and the Cornish miners. Um, we both spent a bit of time in Cornwall this summer, uh, haven't we? James, you had fun in Cornwall? I had a lovely time in Cornwall. Had a lovely mm. time in Cornwall. And I also know the Cousin Jack song. Because I remember ah. very fondly you playing me it on on a return journey from one of our very late night tour dates. I think yeah, we yeah. were driving back from Sussex or somewhere. Yeah. Um, so this is Cousin Jack by Show of Hands. It's a wonderful, wonderful song. Um, and it's about the, the brotherhood of, of Cornish miners and the, the kind of Cornish diaspora, as you might say in academic terms. All of the Cornish people all over the world uh, uh, are known as Cousin Jack. This land is barren and broken, scarred like the face of the moon. Our tongue is no longer spoken and the towns around us face ruin. Will there be work in New Brunswick? Will I find gold in the Cape? If I tunnel my way to Australia, oh, will I ever escape? And then the wonderful chorus, where there's a mine or a hole in the ground, that's where I'm heading for, that's where I'm bound. So look for me under the load or inside the vein, where the copper, the clay, the arsenic and tin run in your blood and get under your skin. I'm leaving the county behind, I'm not coming back. Oh, follow me down, cousin Jack. So Cornwall's long been associated with the mining industry. And as I say, uh, we have these, these Cornish men and women all over the world known as Cousin Jack. So what's important here, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's a non-relative um, but, but familiar uh, way of, of using the term. And it's all to do with the 
pride of being Cornish, Cornish cultural identity closely linked with their mining industry. There are lots of ways that you could look into this. Um, you think about it this way, in the 19th century, there are about 250,000 people believed to have emigrated from Cornwall. They didn't, a lot of them went to Wales in the north of England where there was nearby mining, but lots went abroad. They went to America, South Africa, Australia, Mexico, Patagonia and Malaya. And so one way of looking at it is to look at the written records of all of these Cornishmen all over the world. Um, there's a, a fabulous example here from Thomas Garby Jr. And uh, he's writing to J.T. Tregellis of St. Agnes. And he's in Guanajuato, a city in central Mexico. And he's, he's writing in 1825. Um, it's interesting he writes about the, 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 the landscape, but also he's got a fair few things to say about the Mexicans, which is uh, eye-opening. And so this is part of a much much longer letter, which was actually printed in the Royal Cornwall Gazette of that year. So they thought it was so splendid, they decided uh, decided to publish it. We arrived here, the headquarters of our future operations on the 13th, all our party being in good health. You may suppose that after a residence of upwards of a month, I should be prepared to give you some description of the place with an idea of our future prospects. But it would baffle a much brighter genius than mine to give you an adequate description of it. I can only say that in a landscape it is more romantic than I or I believe few Englishmen could imagine. It is a large, irregular, ill-built town situated in a number of deep ravines and the mountains close to the back doors of the houses are inaccessible. Many of them are two, three or even four hundred feet high and so abrupt is their declivity that even a goat cannot stand against their sides to feed. The air and climate is fine and salubrious. In the deep ravines the heat of the day is great but leave the town and descend the hills you have the finest and most refreshing breezes you can desire. And the air is scented by a profusion of the sweetest perfuming plants that can possibly be imagined. The soil, where there is anything like able land or plain, is rich and luxuriant. Many of the most valuable fruits and vegetables grow spontaneously. And though the land for culture in this mountainous spot is so contracted, it is abundantly prolific in everything that is necessary for the sustenance of the human species. And all remarkably cheap. them with large churches. In the year 1810 this town with the mining district which is always considered as attached to it contained a population of 80,000 inhabitants and now this is where he decides to talk about them. Uh, but the many revolutions and interruptions concomitant thereon in mining pursuits have reduced their number to within 20,000 and those generally of the most wretched description so miserably poor and disgustingly ugly in their persons that not one in 500 would in England be called tolerable. These people are ignorant, superstitious, bigoted and treacherous. The lower orders make a merit of thieving, and the better sorts cannot blush if detected and exposed in the most knavish transactions. Even the priesthood who hold them in the most degrading thraldom are no better in their morals, and but too frequently share with the culprits the fruits of their knavery, so that I despair of ever seeing civilization and liberality of principles make progress, while such a horde of unprincipled bigots hold the conscience of the people at their pleasure. This country would be a paradise if inhabited by Englishmen. <laughs> what? Okay, a, a, a truly staggering um, uh, a letter there, published in the Cornish Gazette from 1825. Uh, certainly not the kind of thing that would be publishable nowadays, James. Oh, I don't know. I imagine in there. I imagine there'd be certain places you could publish such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I should think so. Sam, I want to end by going back to cousin marriage, intermarriage of cousins. And I think you very nicely talked about the actually quite how common this was in the past. But also it it's frowned upon. And although there are an estimated 10% of marriages between first and second cousins today, um, this has a history of being frowned upon. And it is connected to all sorts of ideas about incest, but also about the physical and mental defects that might come from the offspring, be given to the offspring of people who are too uh, closely related. And 
there have been a number of attempts to actually codify it in law. So if we look at the if we look at the Catholic Church in Europe and we think about the Roman civil law as well, it prohibited marriage within four degrees of consanguinity. Uh, early medieval Europe continues the the late Roman ban on cousin marriage. And then by the time we get to the 16th century, we have this codified much more clearly and printed at the end of the Book of Common Prayer, which is a table of kindred and affinity, which lists the prohibited degrees of kinship with which one could not marry, describing in quite great detail that marriage was either forbidden due to consanguinity, uh, in other words, blood, or through marital affinity. Um, and I'll read you an extract of this, which comes from the Book of Common Prayer, and it's prohibited in Leviticus 18. It is then amended in 1946 and again in 1969, where adoption uh, is added to it. The Levitical Code and the Table of Kindred and Affinity. The table of prohibited degrees printed at the end of the Book of Common Prayer, within which members of the Anglican Church are forbidden by church law to marry, is as follows. A man may not marry one, his grandmother, two, his grandfather's wife, three, wife's grandmother, four, father's sister, five, mother's sister, six, father's brother's wife, seven, mother's brother's wife, eight, wife's father's sister, nine, wife's mother's sister, ten, mother, eleven, stepmother, twelve, wife's mother, thirteen, daughter, fourteen, wife's daughter, fifteen, son's wife, sixteen, sister, 17, wife's sister, 18, brother's wife, 19, son's daughter, 20, daughter's daughter, 21, son's son's wife, 22, daughter's son's wife, 23, wife's son's daughter, 24, wife's daughter's daughter, 25, brother's daughter, 26, sister's daughter, 27, brother's son's wife, 28, sister's son's wife, 29, wife's brother's daughter, and 30, wife's sister's daughter. And, would you believe, a woman may not marry with her one grandfather, two grandmother's husband, three husband's grandfather, four father's brother, five mother's brother, six father's sister's husband, seven mother's sister's husband, eight husband's father's brother, nine husband's mother's brother, ten father, eleven stepfather, twelve husband's father, 13 son, 14 husband's son, 15 daughter's husband, 16 brother, 17 husband's brother, 18 sister's husband, 19 son's son, 20 daughter's son, 21 son's daughter's husband, 22 daughter's daughter's husband, 23 husband's son's son, we're almost there, 24 husband's daughter's son, 25 brother's son, 26 sister's son, 27 brother's daughter's husband, 28 sister's daughter's husband, 29 husband's brother's son, and 30 husband's sister's son. <laughs> is is that all clear? Wow. Uh, 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 very clear. But you don't realise just how complicated the family relationship could be unless you actually list it all. No, it's incredibly, incredibly complicated. Now, against that backdrop, I want to refer you to a wonderful collection of documents that I came across many, many years ago, edited by the wonderful Nancy Taylor uh, for the Medieval and Renaissance Texts and Studies Society. And it's a volume called Cousins in Love. And it's the letters of Lydia Dugard, 1665 to 1672, with a new edition of The Marriages of Cousin Germain, by Samuel Dugard. And basically what this tells the story of is Lydia, who fell in love with her cousin Samuel when she was 15. And they begin this correspondence. She's living in a small English village in Warwickshire and she writes to him on a regular basis. And over the course of writing these letters, it is very clear that they are falling in love and the two of them want to get married. And seven years later, in 1672, they do. 
And what they have to do is they have to get their parents on board. Um, so they try and persuade the, the father in particular uh, to allow them to marry. And also because Samuel is away at university and has a fellowship, he actually wants to keep the marriage secret so that he can continue in his position because married fellowship married fellows was not allowed so he would have had to relinquish his position but he wanted to keep on on doing it a lot of the letters all of the letters are at the Folger Shakespeare library um but i think one of the most extraordinary things is that at the at the end of this is a text thought to have been produced by Samuel Dugard in defence of the marriage of first cousins, so of cousins German. Um, but I think what I'd, what I'd like to do is just to give you a flavour of, of both of these types of documents. I want to give you a flavour of some of Lydia's letters, which start in 1665 when, as I said, she's just 15 years old. Uh, Samuel is at Oxford at the time. And you can see that she is being quite intimate in these letters. So to read you an extract for one of them. For me to excuse myself were but to aggravate the fault, and you would question the truth of it. I would say, I wanted time to write to you. No cousin, I know no employment, would be more pleasing if my head, which you know was never too pregnant, were as ready as my hand. And as the as the the letters continue you can really see that she's that she's growing in her affection of him and she asks him to not send letters to her via his letters to her father because she worries that those letters will be opened and read and actually she wants these letters to be kept secret so that they can keep their relationship very much to themselves so I have here one of her first letters uh, that she wrote to him, which I'm going to read you an extract from. Dear cousin, she writes, and this is dated November the 17th, 1666. Dear cousin, I told you I should want these opportunities of writing I employed at Coventry, and I find I can't have the same privacy I had there. And besides, here are those that do as good as tell me they suspect the truth. In other words, people know, are starting to know about the relationship. She wants to keep it secret and she's worried that she can't have the kind of degree of privacy that she wants. So I cannot be too wary, nor give them too little ground for their suspicion, therefore... Dear cousin, you won't say I am so composed and unconcerned as to the rest. Pleased with a seldomer converse, you will know it is a forced silence since you had other visits elsewhere, and you wrong me, cousin, if you think you are no, not more in my thoughts than ever. They say the absence of friends cools the afflictions, but it is not, nor can't possibly be so here. I thought I had said enough from time to time to let you know I nourish more than half a respect for you and that you have more than half a heart. I am sorry, my dear cousin, you so much question my fidelity. Let it satisfy that you have as large a room in my esteem as you can in reason desire. I think the time of my art's going to Tadmarton is uncertain as yet, but it seems you intend to give her that one day you promised me and spin out the time to the length of a cruel twelve-month. I must confess you will give yourself the less trouble, but me less satisfaction. Thanks for your verses. I can take most of them pretty well, but want the author to explain your London's fall. My dearest cousin, your faithful Lydia Dugard. I think you, you get a real sense of the relationship here. The, the desire for privacy, the secrecy with it, the wanting to wanting to see him, the expressions throughout of emotion, the fact that he's been sending her these verses. What becomes apparent reading through the volume is that while this correspondence is going on, and some people may suspect it, the family continues trying to set up advantageous matches for both children and 
put suitors in their direction. So they are basically trying to marry them off. And of course, they are trying themselves to resist this and to keep this clandestine love relationship going. So an ex it's an extraordinary exchange of correspondence. We, we have mainly her side of the correspondence rather than his. But as always, that's very much the case with, with correspondence. It's very rare that we get proper exchanges, particularly in the 17th century. Really difficult to piece them together like that. The final thing that I want to talk about is that after they are married, um, in 1673, there emerges in Oxford at Henry Hall's Press, so a little sort of printing press, a small book entitled The Marriages of Cousin Germain, Vindicated from the Censures of Unlawfulness and Inexpediency. And there is a lot of evidence, internal evidence, and some in the correspondence surviving between Samuel de Garde and Thomas Barlow, that basically suggests quite strongly that it is being written by Samuel. And so we conjecture, you know, why would he why would he do this? There are also references in Lydia's letters uh, that make it very clear that Samuel has been working on this treatise since 1672 and what he does is basically he is going against the contemporary sensibility that marriage between cousins is unlawful and you can take for example not only the table of kindred that we've looked at but also how contemporaries felt about marriages so for example if we look at a letter by Sir John Bramston and his response to his daughter's marriage to her first cousin, you can see the kind of thing that we're that we're talking about and that this this treatise is reacting against. Elizabeth, my youngest daughter, married first, bestowing herself on Mountford Bramston, her cousin Germain. This marriage troubled me extremely, not only because I knew my brother had very many children to provide for, but in truth my concernment was chiefly the nearness in blood, it being but one degree from incest, in other words, brother and sister. Yet time and the persuasion of friends prevailed with me to forgive that which was past remedy. I found, too, that the prohibitions of the church had varied as to the degrees, and was rather political then for any prohibition in the Levitical law. So then what the treatise does is it sets up all the arguments against cousins marrying. So it takes on all these sort of degrees of prohibition that Archbishop Parker uh, you know, sets forth, all the sort of arguments against it, and then, and then takes them apart one by one and refutes them and puts forward a, you know, a fairly robust, robust case. And one of the things that he, one of the things that he, wants to stress is very much the personal um, relationships and the personal emotions that are that are involved in this and there's one lovely passage that I just want to quote quote from you which some can read as autobiographical um, and he he argues in this in a blind passion so he's depicting this sort of young couple who in a blind passion rush into matrimony and hamper themselves in courts which must not break till with the thread of life, in other words, till death us do part. And now when the holy month, as they say, is over and their cloyed love will give them leisure to think seriously, they begin to question whether they married lawful or no. They now can hearken to folks who say that first cousins never thrive and they are almost persuaded they have been too rash in that which is the greatest affair of a man's life. Their hearts, which knew nothing but love before, now begin to let in remorse, and gradually they blame every ill in their lives on this one false step and end in misery. In other words, what he wants is for this love to flourish and to continue. And after the honeymoon, and you basically realise what you've done, if you've got people who are saying that it is unlawful and that you need, you know, that it isn't going to work, that is something that will destroy the relationship that you are basically trapped into 
and that's something that he wants to avoid. So there we are, Sam. Uh, uh, marrying cousins. Fantastic stuff, and so many different ways for us all to think about the history of cousins, guys. I hope you very much enjoyed that, and you found one particular aspect which resonated with you more than others, and uh, you enjoyed it all. Um, do please follow me on social media for more. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis, and if you're interested in the history of the sea, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Dable. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also all over social media on Instagram, on Facebook. So check us out there. We also have a website where you can see all our back catalogues, our books, all sorts of things like that, which is historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you want to become a patron, head over to Patreon. And you can support in any small way that you can what we are trying to achieve in helping people change the way in which they think about the past. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Back soon. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.